Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. All Fantastic episode here to close off the season. Uh, would you believe it? We have a double Tony nominee and a Grammy award-winning songwriter for Song of the Year on the same episode. I'm pretty stoked. Yep, we got Lee Nash, the director of Yellow Face by David Henry Huang for the Public Theater. We have got William Finn. Uh, yeah, I don't think I need to say anything more, but a uh, double Tony winner for uh, Falsettos, the writer of... Putnam County Spelling Bee, and his current play, uh, the review, Make Me a Song, stops by. We're going to hear some songs from him and a great interview. Uh, we got a couple musicals in development. We're also going to be hearing from Jump. It's a, a new theatrical experience in New York. That's all on Act 1 here. And then on Act 2, remember, you can go to uh, your podcast listing in uh, your iTunes and look at the list and you'll see Act 2 to download if it's not automatically downloading for you. We have got Jeff Silbar, Grammy Award-winning songwriter, Song of the Year, uh, and I think you might have heard of the song. He wrote Wind Beneath My Wings for an artist I'm sure you're uh, all fans of, Bette Midler. Yeah, where you hear the story about that song and a lot more. And uh, he performs live here in the studio as well. Um, we've got Flying Fig Productions with their show New Amsterdam's. And uh, we're going to, we just got a lot of stuff going on, so I'm not going to, waste too much time jumping into it. Let's get into our first interview. On the boards. Anybody who remembers the opening of Miss Saigon in early 90s should remember a lot of hullabaloo surrounding the casting issues. Uh, playwright David Henry Wong led the protests and now and in a turn of events that should appeal to not only fans of musical theater but straight plays and, uh, and I think all sorts of artists. The Public Theater presenting David Henry Wong's new work, Yellow Face, and we have director Lee Silverman here in the studio with us. How are you doing, Lee? Hi. Great, thanks. So I, I, I very, I just really gave like you know the uh, very soft encapsulation of this whole event. But um, w w what were I, there's a lot to talk about here between all the casting and colorblind issues and, and leading into this play. And, and probably the best way to start is maybe at the beginning with the catalyst of the whole event with uh, Miss Saigon. Sure. I mean, I think that something that David's been interested. in in exploring since the Miss Saigon issue was what makes what would make a race farce in a certain way. Like you have gender farces, you have, you know, in Shakespeare there's many of them. But what would be a race farce? How could you do that? And so he uses 
throughout the whole play of Yellow Face, a series of very personal kind of autobiographical events, starting with the Miss Saigon protest that he led as a catalyst in a way to sort of explore all of these different issues of what is race, what is colorblind casting, what is identity, what does it mean to say, as as the character of David Henry Wong does throughout the play, I'm an Asian American role model. <laughs> and then it's like, and then he spends the whole play just skewering himself. And in fact, skewering, I mean, I think part of the thing that makes this play so radical and so fun to work on is um, he really takes everything that I think has become synonymous with his name, political correctness, you know, the idea of being, he calls himself Captain Asian America, you know, in the play. And he just continually skewers it and in a way um, has terrific fun with our idea of political correctness. And in a certain way, the play is a radical departure for him in terms of things he's written before. And I think a very profound, ultimately personal, meaningful kind of search for what makes us the best person that we are? Is it what we look like on the outside or, in fact, who we may be on the inside? Now, for, for those of our listeners who may not remember or were too young to know the whole thing, uh, maybe you can let us know exactly what the issue was surrounding Miss Saigon. Sure. So um, the lead character um, in Miss Saigon is the role of an Asian engineer. Um, it's actually an, a Eurasian engineer. That's sort of how it's defined. And, and Jonathan Price Jonathan Price. Is. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so that was a part that was played to great acclaim in, in London. And then when Cameron McIntosh was going to bring the production here to New York, there was sort of an outcry that how could Jonathan Price play that part? And there was, I think, a real sense of he was taping his eyes up during the production. You know, he was wearing yellow face. There was a, and there's a long tradition tradition of that happening here. And I think that it was it came right on the heels of David winning the Tony Award for M Butterfly, and there's there was I think sort of a hope or a sense from the Asian community that it would be different here, that the times would be different. At least that's what the play kind of posits. And so um, what it starts, the, really the play starts with David winning the Tony Award for M. Butterfly and then receiving a phone call from B.D. Wong saying, um, David, do you know that Jonathan Bryce is coming here and is going to play this part? And, and the character of David Henry Wong says, no, 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 that would never happen here. Yellow face in this day and age? That's crazy. And then, and then we just um, sort of go from there. And so then there's a series of what happened, of course, is that um, David petitioned Equity, and then Equity said that they didn't want to allow Jonathan Price to come and play the part. And then it became sort of an issue of artistic freedom. And then the factions of Equity, there were actually people turned on each other in a certain way. So there were a huge number of people who felt that he should be allowed to play the part. And then there was a huge number of people in the theatrical community who felt that we should protest in playing the part. And then it became kind of, it, it was just wildfire. And then before you knew it, people like um, George F. Will, Frank Rich, Ed Koch. I mean, the 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 sensation of kind of this issue and should Jonathan Price be allowed to play this part or not became kind of like a an of the moment kind of thing. It was everywhere. Everyone was quoted talking about it, taking sides, and ultimately. Um, David, as the forefront of the um, of the protest, uh, ended up kind of looking, I think, in his mind, a little silly because he sort of felt like the artistic freedom issue was an important one, 
And then ultimately, of course, Jonathan Price was allowed to come and play the part, and it was a huge hit and ran for years and made a ton of money. So. And I will that a lot of Asians did end up getting to play of the course, role. Of course, of course. And, you know, the thing is, is I think, you know, it's the, the issue of should white... I mean, it's like in a certain way, all things being equal, I think we believe that people who are best for the role should play the role. On the other hand, all things are not equal. And you can't, you, you can't assume that. So at the time, there was, I think, part of the, the, what people were objecting to was that there hadn't been an effort to find an Asian male lead for that role, that there were perhaps many or a few or a couple or some <laughs> actors who could have played that part who were, in fact, Asian. Now, how, how early on were you involved in, in this production and kind of what brought you into Yellowface as a director? Well, I think um, Oscar Eustace, the artistic director at The Public, called me and he said that he had the perfect play for me to direct. And I was like, wow, what does that mean? Did What's David the perfect? Did David yeah. that an Asian should direct the show? I, well, you know, I thought, what, what is it about this play? Like, wh- why me? Why me? I was so curious. And, um, and then I read it, and I thought, oh, I get it, because it's this autobiographical, meta-theatrical play about race and identity. And I think because of the success of Lisa Crone's play Well that I directed, I think because of um, a play called Blue Door that I directed last year that Tanya Barfield wrote, I mean, in a certain way, I I've been very lucky in that I've gotten stylistically adventurous plays that deal in a very personal way and also in kind of a um, universal way with issues about about race and um, and about identity. And um, there is there are similarities between Yellowface and Well that I think are are both um, fascinating and also, I mean, in a certain way, at the beginning of Well, Lisa came out, the real Lisa Crone came out and said, hi, my name is Lisa Crone and this is my play. And at the beginning of this play, an actor playing David Henry Wong comes out and says, you know, my name is David Henry Wong and this is my play. And it's interesting, I mean, the kind of way, and I thought, oh, that's that's become my niche. I don't know what that <laughs> niche is. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I feel so lucky. So I um, so Oscar gave me the play to read, and I read the play. David and I had a kind of initial conversation about it. And um, and then we, with the help of um, the Lark Play Development Center, we did a bunch of workshop and work on the play. We went to Stanford and did a workshop in collaboration with the public. And then we did a first production at Center Theater Group in L.A., Earlier this year. So now, is this your first time working with the public? Well, we did well there. Okay. Oh, well, was that? so um, which was three years ago. Four, three years ago now. Yeah. What's it like working with the public? It's certainly an institution that has a lot of. I, I've been dying to get something with the public on the show, and I, I'm pleased that you're uh, our first interview with the public. You know, <laughs> the public. It's the public. You walk in there, and you feel like, oh, you know, this is. I mean, I think when you're, um, I mean. It is, for me, so full of history, right? I mean, it is, I mean, when you go into the Ansbacher, which is the theater that's in the round, you know, that used to be the public reading room when it was the library. And there's this sense that there's so much history there. I love when you walk in there at 7.30 and there's three shows going on there and you have an audience, you know, for each and everyone. And it's so mixed right now. Brother Size is down there. Yellowface is there. Hamlet's there. You couldn't ask for a more diverse group. You couldn't ask for a groovier audience. You couldn't ask for, in a certain way, 
it is the most, I think, vibrant kind of scene that there is. And I think part of what Oscar's really trying to do is get every theater running every night with something. And then, of course, you have Joe's Pub. And, you know, so I think it's um, when you're aspiring to do kind of interesting work that feels like it could reach a large number of people, the public is the best place to be. Yeah, recently it seems like the public has really forged a nice kind of identity, you know, shift where they're like halfway between the the uh, the stoic classicism of maybe like Lincoln Center and the complete eclecticism of La Mama. Right, right. <laughs> where it is this blend of, you know, more experimental work, but work that is accessible. Like, for instance, I know Passing Strange is a public presentation yeah. that's actually moving to Broadway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really, I mean, and I think, like, well, Passing Strange is also, you know, um, was a very adventurous project for them, you know, with people who had never done theater before, you know, um, and it was kind of a new thing. And, I mean, I'm really, they're actually being moved to Broadway by the same producers who moved us to Broadway. So that was kind of, that's kind of great. You know, I think it's a very, I mean, it was amazing. Earlier this this season, I was on a panel with some of the other people who are going to be producing work at The Public this year, and it was me and David Wong and Richard Nelson and um, Terrell McCraney, who wrote Brother Size, and it was just, like, the most interesting conversation. And I think um, it is, you know, when you're trying to, do, do this with your life, it is sort of the thing you hope most for, is that you end up in a room like that, being able to be part of it. <laughs> Flashing back a, a couple years, um, what was the hardest part as a new director, trying to break into the scene and make a name for yourself? <laughs> what wasn't hard? <laughs> um, I think that directing is unusual because really the job is to synthesize information that's coming to you all the time from many different places and then to be able to communicate it in a way that feels articulate and open and um, that is productive and creative and to keep a room feeling um, pressure free and exciting, adventurous. And I think when you don't, the, really the only way as a director to get that experience is to do it. And so when you don't have a ton of experience under your belt, when you don't have work of yours that people have seen, getting people to trust you, to respect you, to listen to you in the way you want to be listened to, the, the, the degree that you have to really work to earn it before you can even really start to get the work done is hard. And certainly, um, I'm still in that situation all the time. I think that every process, it's like, oh my God, you're starting over again. It's mm -hmm. like the first day of school. But I also think that I have um, very luckily amassed enough work that people have seen or know about that um, that kind of those first few days are just a little bit easier. <laughs> uh, how much of reference is people like actually familiar with the work and how much of it is like, oh yeah, I worked with her, you know, as it goes on, you, do you know? 
I'm sorry, say more about that. Well, you know, theater is an all of course, it's an art form that lives on stage. Yeah, and a certain yeah. amount of people can see it. Right. So I'm just curious in your in your history when you get roles of how much of your work is really people who've seen your work or that expanded network of people who have experienced your work by working with uh, you. Well, you know, for better or for worse, it is the most nepotistic business on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's like you just hope you, you know, you keep the good the good reputation going because that's really all you have in a certain way, you know. Because you have that, you have reviews, you have, you know, I mean, that's it. It's not like anyone's making any money or, you know, lives in a good apartment. or You know, like, it's all just about kind of what people say about you in a certain way. And also, um, if you get hired back places. <laughs> so... I guess the last question on, the, uh, on these career lines yeah. is how often do you lobby for a job? Like you said, they kind of approached you on this, but do you ever find a show or see a play or do you ever lobby to try to get in on a project? You see something that you just, you've got to direct and you... Well, <laughs> um, it, it doesn't so much work like that because I get stuff because I do mostly new work mm -hmm. I've, I mean really all I do is new work so I mean when I see something um, I mean it's mostly that there are writers or, or um, uh, that I am dying to work with more than like oh they wrote that play and I'm dying to direct it because often the play's not written yet mm -hmm. but um, like I had this amazing thing happen which was that Stephen Merritt, who um, is in the band The Magnetic Fields, who's like this really amazing um, singer, songwriter, composer, musician, um, uh, and uh, David Greenspan, who you know is a fantastic actor and um, and writer, are joining together to write a book for this um, musical. And it's it's it was a project that like. I just felt like I'm nowhere near cool enough to um, to work on this. There's this book called they're they're, they're doing a musical. This book called Coraline, which is um, a book written by the, this guy Neil Gaiman, who wrote the Sandman series, oh, and yeah. he wrote Beowulf, and he wrote Stardust, and he's like sort of in the world right now in such a huge way. And he has this book Coraline about um, a little girl who sort of opens the door in her flat and goes to the other side, and all of a sudden, like everyone who's in her her regular world is in this other world, and it's all this sort of creepy, weird, strange, terrifying thing. And I was just dying to work on it, and I had this sort of strange first meeting with them, and. Um, about the project and then like a year went by and I never heard anything and I thought oh I should have lobbied so much harder for that I really 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 didn't tell them how much I loved it I just was like so intimidated in a certain way and now it's all come back around and we're working on it so that makes me really happy that was like a really good story <laughs> but you know it's for me it's all about like who I, I feel so lucky because I feel like the collaborators that I have that I've worked with that I'm that are sort of I'm working on stuff with I feel like that's the thing that I want the most is to have an interesting group of projects with writers who are um, have a lot to say and are creative and outrageous alright well Lee Silverman I thank you so much for coming in the show is Yellowface it's at the Public Theater uh, it's playing uh, through December 23rd yes um, do you know specifically where they would go for tickets on that it's it's uh, publictheater.org to get tickets, so you can check it out. It sounds like a load of fun. Thank um, you. And David Henry Wong doesn't do a, he's not like this playwright who puts out like a, you know, a show every month. This so. is actually his first new play in 10 years. <laughs> so <laughs> come see it. You don't want to miss it. it. You know, he wrote the musical for uh, the book for Aida and for Tarzan, but in terms of new plays, this is really it, and I think it is his most adventurous play yet. All right, well, thanks so much, and best Thank of luck you. with the continuing run. Thanks. The call board.
All right, first up on Thursday, December 14th, uh, that's probably tonight if you listen to it quick or you're going to have to catch a rerun, uh, NBC's 30 Rock, Liz Lemon's mother visits New York City and the two go see Xanadu on Broadway. Margaret Lemon is played by Broadway vet Anita Gillette. Check local listings for NBC Channel and Airtime. Also, Tony-nominated and Emmy Award-winning actress Kate Burton and TV star Blake Bashoff, currently featured in the ABC TV's hit series Lost, will join the cast of the eight-time Tony Award-winning musical Spring Awakening. Burton joins the cast in the role of The Adult Women for a limited time, Friday, December 21st through Sunday, March 2nd. Bashoff joins the cast in the role of Moritz on Tuesday, December 18th, 2007. In addition, it was announced that Leah Michelle and Jonathan Groff will extend their contracts for six months through May 18th, 2008. Michelle, who stars as Wendla, was nominated for a Drama Desk Award for her performance. Groff, who stars as Melchior, was nominated for a Tony Award, a Drama Desk Award, and a Drama League Award for his performance. Got a couple news from former guests on the show, which is always nice. Uh, Steve Rosen, Sarah Salzberg, and David Rossmer, in conjunction with the Zipper Factory, are proud to present the latest installment of Don't Quit Your Night Job. Closed off Broadway, but still running a special event. The monthly comedy benefit featuring a revolving cast of Broadway and off-Broadway's brightest stars performing without a net. Don't Quit Your Night Job is an evening of improv music, original sketch comedy, and backstage anecdotes, which benefits the Wendy Wasserstein's Open Doors Initiative. The next installment will take place at the Zipper Factory on Thursday, December 20th at 11.30 p.m. Tickets, which are $20, a lot better price than it was off-Broadway, are available in advance by calling 212-352-3101 or online at thezipperfactory.com. If you're interested in hearing the interview, you can just search for uh, Don't Quit Your Night Job at broadwaybullet.com. Okay, also in news, we covered the Fringe musical Piaf in Volume 122 in our Fringe special, and it will be playing again at the Soho Playhouse on weekends through January 20th. The Volume 122 interview also featured two exclusive in-studio performances from lead actress Naomi Emerson. So yeah, you might want to check that out if you missed it. Also, on a personal announcement, uh, one thing that's been keeping me very busy lately is I've been finishing up work on a new musical called Cupid the Musical, which we're going to be filming exclusively for the internet to be delivered through sites like YouTube and such. We're going to be casting in the first part of February. Uh, we're looking for non-union talent. Young, A lot of them are young. A lot of them are 20-ish. Uh, there's a couple other roles. But if you're interested in finding out a little bit more at www.cupidmusical.com or www.michaelgilbo.com. I have a cast breakdown, and I've got a uh, montage of some of the music from the show. It's going to be very pop, rock, R&B kind of a contemporary score for that. Um, I'm also going to be playing that montage here at the end of Act 1, if you're interested, but please let all your incredibly talented friends that aren't in the union know, because uh, uh, we're going to probably get featured here in Broadway World, and I guarantee the people involved are going to get seen by a lot of people. So we're also still looking uh, for a director, uh, talking to a couple people, but I'm still on the lookout if you're interested. Choreographer, costumer, uh, makeup, hair, a lot of people. If, if you're interested in participating or finding out a little bit more, please feel free to email me at mgilbo at broadwaybullet.com. All right, so... Uh, that about wraps up Cobbard for this week. So um, we're going to jump into our uh, prize featured interview here. Up close. All right, I'm sitting here in the studio with a composer lyricist of uh, 
great <laughs> magnificence. I don't uh-huh. often get people of this quality, and I'm very excited to have William Finn, who's got a brand new review. It's lovely to be here. It, well, there's a, a show called Make Me a Song, which is a bunch of my songs, including a whole suite of falsettos and... Uh, Directed and conceived by Rob Ruggiero and performed by four remarkable, talented uh, actor-singers. And this is at New World Stages. And New World Stages, they have to come see it. It's good. Yeah. 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 You don't have to be gay or Jewish to like the show. Are you gay? Are you Jewish? But it doesn't hurt. Really? So uh, (laughs) that's what I think, you know? Get down there. (laughs) So now, you're one of the very few people who has won a Tony for both book and I, I imagine and I, I can't, can't imagine it's very few people, but I have won Tony for both book and music <laughs> lyrics. Now, uh, that was for Falsettos, which right. was, I think, a, a show that a lot of people were surprised ended up going to Broadway. Would you, would you say that there was some surprise in the industry when that happened? I was not surprised. Well, and good. I have no idea what <laughs> I don't know what the industry is thinking. I'm the contraindicator, so uh, I'm not the person that you want to speak to about such things. Well, but, you know, Falsetto was, was a show, you know, it's a, it's a smaller show, and this was before, like, you know, a lot of smaller shows have taken over Broadway. It wasn't, La Caja full dealt with, like, gay themes and everything, but it was big and showy and traditional. Well, La Caja was theater. big and showy in, in sort of a different way, and, and entirely different way. And Falsetto's was, you know, a more intimate It was smart and funny and... And um, and smart. And, and yeah, yeah, well, whatever. It it was whatever it was. And uh, I think Broadway's the perfect place for it. It's definitely the perfect place, but it was... It, it was and it was nice to see, but I, I I'm originally from Montana, so that might be where <laughs> a, a lot of the the surprise was. We're in Montana, the, Great Falls, actually, uh-huh. right in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> I pretended I knew. <laughs> so, how how did you get started, and and kind of what got your your career moving? What got you into doing musical theater? When I was a freshman at Williams College. A guy, and after I'd done the freshman review, a guy named Charlie Rubin asked me if I would write a musical for next year, for the following year. And I said, sure, because I was young and stupid and I had no idea. I didn't know how to play piano. I just could play guitar. He said, well, can you learn piano in the next few months? I said, I guess so, because I was young and stupid and, and you thought you could do anything then. So uh, that's what happened. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and then I wrote three shows while I was at Williams and... Uh, and got got a fellowship at the end of that time and have just been doing the same things over and over and over again. <laughs> so what was your first foray and I guess what was your first paid job in, in musical theater? Um, I, have, I have no idea. I guess, I guess in trousers. Um, I guess. I don't know. Um, in, in trousers was done upstairs at Plaritz Horizons when they were beginning uh, when they were doing for composer lyricists what they had done for playwrights and uh, I was the first composer lyricist 
uh, t- to be in the program, and that, the show was in trousers. And we did the show. We started the show upstairs. We used to rehearse from 11 o'clock at night till 3 in the morning, and that's when Times Square was still baby Times Square. Um, so getting to the theater was just having gotten to the theater was always an accomplishment. And then we'd start the rehearsal, and it was just enormous fun. And we had a ball. Mary Test and Alison Frazier and then Chip Zion joined us, and uh, that, that was the first thing. And then we moved downstairs. I was I was Marvin in, in those productions. I directed, <laughs> and I was Marvin. And Michael Starbin was the wonderful music director and orchestrator. Who, when I said to him, "Can you orchestrate this and transcribe it and orchestrate it, and be the music director?" and he said, "How much are you going to pay me?" I said. Uh, $35. She said, I will not do it for less than 50 Now, that's a negotiator. <laughs> so that's Michael Sarabin. And uh, we just had a ball. So now, with Make Me a Song, you mentioned just before we started the interview that you, you thought it would be a horrible idea. I was wrong. I'm the <laughs> counterindicator. But what were, what were your misgivings going on? Well, I, I just thought it was a little early in my career to be doing it. I mean, I'm... I'm ridiculously old, but I pretend I'm not. And uh, I just thought it was a little premature to do one of these song fests, you know, reviews. Now, um, I'm, I'm going to be getting to see this soon, but I actually haven't had a chance to see it yet. So a lot of your songs are very intricately woven and into the fabric of the shows they, they came from. No, they aren't. They actually are great standalone songs. They're, I mean, they're... I, I try and write them to be standalone songs, and a lot of what I've been writing has been song cycles for the past, you know, five years. And because of that, those are particularly great standalone songs. So anything from allergies is is fabulous by itself. You don't need anything. I give you all the information you need. <laughs> and so anything we have from that that show, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful show. It's for for what it is. You know, it's hard to like reviews, but if. I guarantee you, if you don't, even if you don't like reviews, you will like the show. It, that's, it's, it, it's a hard form to like, but this is a very likable show. Well, you're just talking about elegies. Um, maybe we can play a song from, from the show. Well, why don't we? What, what song would you like to us to play? Uh, what here? about Passover? Is there any setup? Do you want to, anything you want to say about this song? No, or? it's it's a song. No. It, it, I think everything that's there needs uh, – it's being sung by Carol Lee Carmilla from the Elegies album and it's sung brilliantly in the show by Sally Wilford. And uh, that's all I think you need to know. All right. Well, let's take a listen. Passover at Auntie Honey's and Uncle Harvey's in New Jersey. My sister would hold her breath over the George Washington Bridge and we would laugh at her. She'd frown. Everyone, including Nana Ida, would be standing by the front door as we pulled up. And we'd count down. Four, three, two, one! And we'd fight to be the first out of the car. Having come this far, having come so far for this feast, this feast of no yeast. And the matzo balls are so hard when you cut them, they just Then start eating Uncle Harvey's the cook Ma laughed so loud that she shook Cousin Gary is reading porn 
We've run out of skull caps. Some men are wearing Acapulco Beach Club bandanas that really, really, really should not be worn. We are Jews like from the first 5,000 years, laughing through our tears. Joyous, vulgar, anything goes. But we wear nice clothes. That's the way I like remembering this scene. about what Pharaoh did to the Jews, about how Pharaoh wore those big gold platform shoes, and how the Jews escaped stealthily by splitting the Red Sea. Wait, wait, I think that was a movie. Anyway, when I tell the story of Passover, which I am instructed to do, how the Jews of Natick traveled over the Hudson River and had an unforgettable Seder. More details about that later. It's later. Michael, as the youngest, sings out the four old questions. What they mean is unknown. My father is playing trombone. Then we go to meet. Elijah at the door. I can see the faces round the table and the grins are getting larger and the voices begin to soar. One, two, three, four! And I think that we will never laugh so hard, never feel so free. I think life that night was more perfect than it will ever be. Uncle Bernie and my mother overwhelmed begin to What your kind of process is as a composer and lyricist? Um, I'll tell you, it's very, it's very, very easy. What, what I try and do is get my first lyrical line. <clears throat> get one, one line. <clears throat> Say four Jews in a room bitching, which is the the opening of <clears throat> March the Falsettos. Four Jews in a room bitching. Then I work musically down, filling in dummy lyrics as as I'm working. And sometimes my dummies are pretty good, and so I keep them and. That's that's how I wrote the song. It, it starts though with the lyrical line almost always. So, but the lyric, and then you kind of frame the melody, and then, then I'm, 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 I'm a lyricist who writes some good music, some very good music. Oh, that's sweet. Of you. <laughs> so, Spelling Bee, which has just had a tremendous run on well, Broadway, it's, it's still running. Yes, it's still running till the twentieth of January. Yeah, till the twentieth of January. 
that that was kind of an odd situation. That was something that was being developed by a core group of actors as kind of a straight play. And then how did you get brought into <laughs> It was the being whole... done downtown by a group of imp- improvisators, which included Dan Fogler and um, Sarah Salzberg who, and Jay Reese, who, who were in the show uh, on Broadway. But it, w- it was a large group of, uh, of friends, basically, under the supervision of um, Rebecca Feldman. And, uh, and they did a show downtown uh, in a toilet, a toilet theater. And it so <laughs> happened that my dear, dear friend Wendy Wasserstein, uh, her weekend nanny was Sarah Salzberg. And being the nicest person in the world, Wendy said, of course I'll come see it, not expecting it to be anything. And then she called me up. She goes, oh, you know, she said there might be something there, but uh, would you just take a look at this? And they had made a film, a little film very smartly um, of it. And I popped in the CD and I thought, Jesus, I've been waiting for this my whole life. It, w- it was exactly what I loved. It was a competition for smart people. Now, I love competitions of any kind, beauty pageants, Project Runway, anything. Um, football games, love them. Basketball games, anything. I love, but I can't do them. <laughs> There's nothing I can do. And here was uh, Spelling Bee. This is my competition. This is what I can do, other than writing Sestinas. I, I figure if we, there can be a sur- survivor for people who can write Sestinas, they'll keep me on. Otherwise, I'm off. I'm off immediately. But... Um, <laughs> Here was a show that I knew exactly how to make into a show. It really was a sketch. It was an extended, a very extended sketch. Um, there was no show. There was no development, plot development or character development. And, and uh, it was a show easy to make good. And Rachel Schenken did a brilliant job writing books. She was a student of mine at NYU. And... Uh, now she's a colleague of mine there, and she's just a great writer, and it was a pleasure working with her. I think one of the hallmarks of your work, and, and definitely part of Spelling Bee, is you know this, you have this great ability to go from very wildly silly, funny, humorous to just all of a sudden a, on, a, on a diamond twist into something that's just really like heartbreaking and poignant and real. And is that like something you work towards, or is it, is it just part of you that pours well, out? Well, it's just part of me, but it's. You know, in, in, in class, basically, I talk about writing from the right place. And the right place is the—and they all, they look at me so dumbly and say, what is the right place? And, of course, it's a very good question. And basically, the right place is the place that's both funny and serious and just where everything's real, where, where it's true. And so I, I just try and write from that place. And, you know, life is like that. One moment it's funny and the next it's horribly miserable. And so you just play with what you got and see what's there. So uh, should we take a listen to another one of, the, one, another one of your songs? Okay, this is also in uh, Make Me a Song, but it's done at... at Carmel Dean wrote a wonderful arrangement and and a song from In Trousers called, uh, what is it called? Set Those Sails. We put in combination with I'd Rather Be Sailing the song from A New Brain. So I I guess this is um, Norm Lewis singing from uh, the album of, of A New Brain, 
but it's done wonderfully in the show by D.B. Bonds and Sally Wilford also. Okay. All right. I'd rather be sailing, yes I would, on an open sea. I'd stand at the railing if I could, feeling wild and free. The sun is on my neck, the wind is in my face, the water's incredibly blue. Yes, I'd wanna go sail and then come home to you. Sex is good, but I'd rather be sailing. Food is nice, but I'd rather be sailing. People are swell, but I'd rather be sailing. projects are you are you one of those composers who's working on 10 different things at a time or you're lately or? I've been producing a lot of my students work up at the Barrington stage we've started a new theater uh, a part of Barrington stage which is in Pittsfield Massachusetts and we're doing we're introducing new composers and lyricists to the world or to Pittsfield <laughs> and then to the world and um we're trying to make Pittsfield the epicenter of the musical theater writing world. So that it's, it, we're having a ball doing it with Julie Boyd, and it's enormous fun. And we're getting fabulous. Last last year we did fabulous shows. Each of the three shows we did um, has a place to be done in New York. So um, and and one of the shows is being done at the Vineyard now. It's uh, in rehearsal. Uh, Burnt Part Boys by. Uh, Nathan Tyson and Chris Miller 
And, oh, my God, who wrote the wonderful book? Oh, she'll kill me. Mariana, Mariana. Oh, God, it's right on the tip of my tongue. Um, well, I'm not going to get it. Um, anyway, she's wonderful. And uh, it's been very interesting trying to introduce these people to a larger audience. You know, because talent is is only a part of what makes writers good. They they need they need to be successful, and they need uh, to to force themselves to write well. And uh, the need is a little psychotic and, and a little neurotic, but it's a necessary part of the whole thing. So sometimes working with them is is a little chancy, but it's always kind of fun. Yeah, I wasn't aware of all, all these these different projects you're working with, and it, it's really refreshing to see. You know, it's rare that you see somebody who's so at the top of their game. You know, show running on Broadway right now, off Broadway, and you're taking the time to work and help develop. Well, nothing, and, and, nothing is more fun. You know, writing is is really tough, and it's very solitary, and it it is what it is. You know, you're thrilled to have written, but writing I find really tough. Teaching and producing like this is always a pleasure. And and being able to help people who don't have all the baggage you have, uh, who are so fresh and so open, so available and so eager to do whatever they have to do, it's, it's just uh, it's my, my pleasure to, to, to help them. Is this like an official program that people apply for and come across well, the United States, or is this all locals? Or it's a, it's, They can apply, but it's more whoever I run into. You know, I, I keep my ear pretty close to the ground, and I just look and look and look for people whose work I want to produce. Right. <laughs> so now, kind of getting back into the the show at at uh, New World Stages. Make me a song. Must be seen. <laughs> well, who's some of the fabulous uh, cast and you know director and then the people that are involved? Sally in- Wilford, Sandy Binion, D.B. Bonds, and Adam Heller, the wonderful Adam Heller, playing me kind of uh, during the show. Is that is that daunting for him? Oh, I don't think so. I think it's thrilling. <laughs> well, I don't know. You're playing well, the person he, and he's right there watching. He can sing. He can sing, whereas I can merely croak. And um, no, he, he's great. Every, everyone's great. It's a wonderful, wonderful cast. And they have to do an enormous amount of singing. And I, I'm always aghast and, and in their thrall that, that they can do it every night. So what was the process of selecting the songs like? I mean, you've got a a pretty extensive catalog. You're young in your career. No, Rob did it. um, And he just chose songs using... I I did an evening of of songs at the public theater called Infinite Joy, and it happened to be recorded by um, by, uh, a very good company, and I can't think of who they are. A really good, uh, really well-known um, <laughs> uh, mental. <laughs> anyway, um, and Billy Rosenfeld recorded in Jay Sachs, and and because of that, he he kind of used that as the template on which he based the whole thing. But but it wasn't that exclusively. I mean, there was a lot of things he did that were were there things you're like, oh addition. no, you got to put this song in. No, you know I mean? no, not really, because it was his it was his doing. Um, there are 
someone else would have chosen completely different songs, and I think the show would have been just good. But this happens to be a very good. He put did a thing at the end, the last twenty minutes. There, there, the the first uh, forty minutes of the show are a bunch of songs, some of which you might have heard with in different arrangements. Um, and it's it's I, I find it a very exciting part. Then there's the falsetto section where there's a twenty minute suite of songs from falsettos, which don't doesn't try to tell the whole story of falsettos, but we we hit a few high points and low points of of uh, what's happening. And then the final section is one that he put together. That's songs from birth to to death. There are four songs that the, the each person has a a wonderful solo and it's kind of a thrilling it's it's absolutely thrilling the, the end the audience sits there it's totally quiet and then they erupt and just applaud and applaud and applaud and scream and you know and then there's the final song and then you go home and you have I think a good time <laughs> so yeah I'm eager to Spelling Bee is set to run still also on Broadway through the 20th of January 20th of January yeah unfortunately in any chance of extension is it, is it, is I it imagine uh, not but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it'll it, be missed it's, it's a, been a very nice run Though hopefully I'm sure it'll keep running. There's still tours of it out, aren't there? There are and tours, yeah. And then uh, I'm be... waiting to see the community theaters do this. And it's going to be done everywhere. I will uh, not be attending those. I don't... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just interested to see how many community theaters debate over whether or but not I wish they can do a show well. with the song "My Unfortunate Erection." Oh, I think they can. <laughs> oh, please. They <laughs> I don't know that it'll be in the elementary school edition, but otherwise <laughs> it'll. Uh... Whatever. So, any uh, other projects on the horizon? No. No? <laughs> <laughs> Let's get out of here. This is a small room. Yes, I, I, I know you're, you mentioned you're a little claustrophobic, so thanks for for sitting in here and, and chatting about your projects, and I wish you all the best, and Great. your students all the best as well. Me too. Thanks a lot. On the boards. Recently, New York has been a hotbed for theater that blends different disciplines that one wouldn't normally associate with the theater. And in one of those latest examples, Jump, currently playing off-Broadway, Martial Arts comes into play in a theatrical display uh, produced by Cami Ventures, and the president of that, Mark Maluso, is here in the studio to talk with us about Jump. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. Thanks for having me. So, I, I guess obviously the first thing is kind of describe for me a little bit what the, what the show is. I understand it's an intriguing mix of all sorts of martial arts. and Yeah, I mean, to sum it up really briefly, Jump is a martial arts comedy, live situation comedy, essentially. Um, the most apt uh, review call, uh, stated that if, if uh, Jackie Chan had been a guest on the uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, you would end up with something probably like Jump. Um, the show is um, uh, pretty much language-free. Um, it's purely physical. Um, it's um, it's very very funny, and it's uh, loosely based on a, on a story of a family who all happen to be martial arts experts. Um, and burglars break into the house, and uh, they spend uh, you know about ninety minutes you know beating the hell out of the burglars. <laughs> so high concept. Yeah, yeah, very. <laughs> it's, this is high culture. You know, this is very serious art. <laughs> 
So, so what's your background in martial arts, or, or, or what was the impetus, I guess, for, for putting this show together? I have absolutely zero background in martial <laughs> arts as a person. I mean, I've produced over the years um, uh, lots, of, lots of tours um, for the Shaolin monks of China. Um, I currently have one out on the road now. Um, we have, a, we have a, a tour called Shaolin Warriors, and it's a, that, that's a martial arts show. Um, and I thought I was going to be, you know, sort of that would be it for me. I'm gonna, that, that, that was my, uh, my foray into martial arts. Martial arts. Um, are, are you one of those people who's seen like every single martial arts movie? You know. You know, I'm not the, one of these the low budget five dollar ones. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm not one of these fans. You know, Kung Fu Hustle is 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 a fantastic one, and you know, in fact, one of the characters of the show Jump is based on on on, on that movie. Um, it's certainly based on a lot of the Jackie Chan movies. Um, it sends up the Matrix a little bit. Um, there's a little bit of Crouching Tiger in there. Um, it tries to be funny and ironic, but I mean, I. For me, um, I, I'm not. I'm not really an expert or a fanatic about any of those uh, those those movies. I happened to see this show quite by accident in London um, when it was playing early in 2006. Um, I saw it. I loved it. I developed a relationship with the owners of the show, and I, I uh, you know, uh, decided to produce it in New York. Now, this opened in October here in New York, right? Yeah, our opening was the 7th of October. So. Okay, so you see this different, you know, martial arts comedy o over in London. Uh, how hard of a sell was that to convince, you know, people to invest in getting it up here in New York? Well, I mean, I'm one of the primary investors with, with my company, Kemi Ventures, which is a subsidiary of Columbia Artists Management, which is a fairly well-established, you know, for 70 or 80 years, <laughs> you know, in the business. Um, so we took the sort of primary position, but the owners of the show uh, came in with us. We have a Japanese partner. Um, and another company here in New York called New York Networks is just a few of us who, who put the money together. It's not a massive capitalization. It wasn't a really big, giant, you know, financial undertaking. Um, you know, but um, for me, the instant I saw the show in London, I knew that it would have an audience or could find an audience uh, in New York. So that was why I decided to do it. I'm just kind of curious, with a different show like this, I imagine there's some different marketing tactics you would take. I mean, I, I imagine there's, you know, there's a general theater core that likes this, but I also imagine you're really working on reaching out to a, a different audience as well. And I'm kind of curious as to what have been some of the different ways you've been working at reaching the people who'd be interested in the show? Well, if you had been a fly on the wall at some of those early marketing meetings, you would have really been fascinated because <laughs> there were varying opinions and some pretty strong ones. Uh, I felt really strongly that if we just put a logo out on our materials and our, you know, sort of primary materials and 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 our and uh, photographs of of productions, previous productions, that would pretty much lose. Um, what we decided yeah, to I, do. I think it pretty much loses even on shows that appeal on a straight theater crowd. I think so. You know, I think we needed to do something different, and we needed to appeal to a broad audience, which would include the fam a family audience. It's not just a family show, but it would also intrigue, you know, young NYU, you know, young sort of, you know, hipsters, you know, and that sort of crowd. And I thought... Um, the best way to do that, um, a company called Red that did our, 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 um, our key art, um, was to provide some illustrations. So we decided to create a bit of like kind of comic strip um, type of marketing. Um, and, and I think it's worked very, very well. We made illustrations of some of the key characters in the show. Um, and we, you know, we put them out in various ways in print and uh, television. Um, soon to come on radio. Um, television has been a big deal for us. It's been a big, you know, big success for us in marketing. Um, and I think that, that isn't that always the case for off-Broadway shows. You know, sometimes they, the return is 
The potential return isn't high enough to justify the cost of television, I know, for a lot of the... I think it depends on the show. I really do. I really do. And I think the physical shows, the purely physical ones, um, the show that was in, in just prior to us, not just prior to us, but somewhat before us, uh, Slava Snow Show, did very well with its TV commercials. I felt that, you know, if we, we had a physical show that, uh, that represented well in television, we would do well, you know, by marketing that way. And that's it's proven to have been the case. I mean, Stomp and Blue Man, I think some of these mm-hmm. groups, you know, from time to time do well with TV. Print's been good for us with the exception of the Times. Um, it's just not our audience there. Um, Really, the Times readers isn't a whole bunch of kung fu geeks. Yeah, go figure. You know? I mean, uh, <laughs> they don't have a they don't have a martial arts section. So, uh, has there been a is there a website associated with this, and has there been like you know some viral marketing and, and taking advantage of kind of like the geek crowd? That's that's. Yeah, we have a, we have a fabulous uh, website, um, which is an, you know sort of an adjunct to the to the home website in Korea. It's jumpnewyorkcity.com. Um, it's really good. A lot of our key arts up there. All the illustrations are there. All of our reviews are there, including you know all the stars that have come to see the show. You know Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt came at the opening and went crazy, and their kids went wild for it. And there were all these great shots with the cast and and all that stuff. And um, we've had a lot of um, email blasting going on in our marketing, and that's tied in through the website um, to kind of create a little bit of viral effect there. We're starting a mobile uh, phone campaign this week, um, which is new to us, so hopefully that'll help in a viral way as well. Now, actually blending the acting and the comedy with the physicalness of all, all the martial arts, what was the casting process like for, for putting the show together here? Was there a local casting call or was it brought over? It's brought over, um, which is difficult because, you know, you have to fly everybody and then you have to house them here and your, your expenses are quite high. Um, but right now that's what we've got. And, uh, you know, the, these people train for three years from the time they enter uh, Yegom Theater Company, which is the production company that owns the show. Um, they're, they're either actors or they're gymnasts, and they train uh, in the show, and they train in the taekwondo and the flipping and all that stuff that they have to do. Um, so we've got 16 people here. Um, so it's almost completely double cast. You know, there's uh, nine people on stage. I would imagine there has to be, like, double cast for the potential for possible injuries or strains that might keep somebody out of a show for a day or two. Is yeah, we've had already some, <laughs> some things going on. You know, this is like an ongoing deal with the shows. I mean, there's various productions of Jump running around the world at any given time. So um, I'm told that this is quite common. I was a little bit concerned because, like, right off the bat, we got two or three injuries. Um, it's just the injuries tend to mostly be not from accidents but overuse, you know, the joint injuries and uh, just sort of overuse stra- strain. Um, so we've just absolutely have to double cast this show. There's no question about it, and we're doing eight shows a week, so um, it's pretty tough for them. So basically, are you, so there's this the company in London that owns the production. Basically, has a whole lot of people being constantly trained up through the system to be able to fly. Because he said it's a three-year process. So that yeah. seems kind of like well, a long-term in, plan. To, yeah, they're in Seoul, not London. Oh, it's sorry. They have a show running in, in okay. London um, in the spring, and they tend to be doing that every year now. But um, yeah, it's called Yangam Theatre Company, and um, they have a literally a training facility. I mean, similar to what Cirque would have, but on a slightly smaller scale. Um, and they have at any given moment, you know, like 20 to 60 people c- coming through that system so that they can, you know, and as they bubble to the top, they go into the shows wherever they are around the world um, and then, you know, continue to replenish that 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 stream. It's kind of wild. <laughs> <laughs> so is it, for the actors, is it their first time in New York? 
Every single one of them had never been to New York City before. I don't think any of them even had been to the United States before. So they had total shock when they arrived. Um, but they're having a really great time. They're running around shopping and you know, going crazy. I guess it brings up a different issue. I know when people try to bring you know, actors over from overseas, a lot of times there's a lot of you know, visa issues. Um, is, is that made easier by the fact that it's such a specialty show? Or, or how are the, those kind of work issues sorted out? Um, you know, it's never easy um, because it's a specialty show. I mean, you know, t t these artists tend to come over on, you know, visas that are, I think they're titled Artists of Extraordinary Ability. Um, I mean, that could apply to just about any artist. Um, the trick is, you know, you need to prove that the people that you're bringing over are not um, replacing, you know, jobs for people here. So in other words, <laughs> you can't just pluck somebody off the street, throw, put them into jump, you know, mm -hmm. and, and you're somehow stealing a job from, from an American. Um, they just need, um, you know, clean records, clean documents, um, and a history in the company, having been employed in the company. We need to prove, my production company needs to prove that... Um, that we're employing them, and uh, there's nothing you know shady going on in that area. And then they have to go do an interview at the consulate in Seoul, which is a little excruciating. And then, and then pay, we have to pay a lot of money, you know, for that process and attorney to get it all done. And it happens. It's just a drag, you know. It's they're pretty much a drag. Uh, on kind of a as we start to wrap up, the Broadway strike has finally ended as of last night. Right. And I'm curious, as in you know producer off-Broadway in a different type of show. Did you see, I, I know some shows said they saw like a, a bump in the small, you know, in their traffic in the smaller theaters. Yeah. I saw an immediate bump the day of the strike started, um, and a very good week after that, and, um, you know, fairly good sales, you know, after that. But I think what happened is one week after we were into that, um, there was like just a general message going out of the t from the town of like, you know, theater is not happening in New York, you know, just shut it down. And people were just making non-theater plans and really not even looking at off-Broadway shows at that point. They were coming, going to museums, restaurants, shopping or whatever they were doing. So I think it started to have a net negative effect on us after the first week. Um, I'm hoping that we're just going to go back to normal before the strike, and we were on an upward trend constantly anyway since the day we opened, you know, higher ticket sales, you know, higher, bigger audiences. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're just, you know, we're happy that that, that thing is over and they can, everybody can get on with their lives. Um, along those notes, as a producer, have, have you been following, like, you know, the negotiations and stuff with the, with the strike? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, in the, you know, we have other business interests, you know, and, and other, you know, sort of lots and lots of friends in the business um, and, and associates and pretty much knew, you know, what was happening. And it was just pretty much, you know, a matter of everybody waiting it out, you know, and, and you know, hammering the points home and ending up with something where both sides could walk away feeling like they got something. Yeah, I kind of so far. I just, I, I, I hope the producers did indeed get what they, you know, wanted out of this. Because my personal thoughts is, I, I do feel that the minimums are a bit extreme, and if you know the cost, this is theater, and I don't think there's not too many people making a fortune off of this. And I, I think if we don't get some sort of a change happening, Broadway's going to turn more into like Vegas. <laughs> Yeah, it's tricky. Um, you know, look, I mean, you can argue it both ways. I mean, as a producer, I mean, we're always looking to do things, you know, less and less expensively. Um, on the other hand, you know, you want to be fair to everybody. And I think, you know, both sides probably gave something and lost something, you know, and hopefully that's usually what happens in these situations anyway. So, okay, Jump is playing at what theater? Jump's at the Union Square Theater downtown on 17th Street, uh, right off of Park Avenue. 
Um, we have eight shows a week. Uh, we have Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays uh, at 8 o'clock. And then we have matinees and evening performances on Saturday and Sunday. And to get tickets, people can go to? You can go to Ticketmaster.com or you can go down to the box office. Or you can uh, click right through on our website, jumpnewyorkcity.com. That'll pull you right over to the Ticketmaster site. All right. Well, it sounds like a fascinating show. And it sounds like a lot of fun. And I'm glad you were able to come down and talk about all the, the unique experiences on, on getting that running. Me too. Appreciate the ability to come down and talk to you. Okay. Thanks. Mark Meliso. Thank you. In development. All right. During the call board, I promised you a sneak peek at the internet musical I'm working on, Cupid the Musical. It's pop musical. And... Uh, I'm not going to tell you how these fit in, and, and they're just snippets and variations, and most of these are like older demos that I've been working on, so some actually turn into duets. Some have had their lyrics changed a bit, but you can get a real good idea of what I really mean we're going for, but uh, how they fit into the story, you'll just have to wait and find out. But again, we are casting, looking for some really good talent um, in New York. Uh, you can find out more at cubanmusical.com or at michaelgilbo.com um, we're going to be announcing doing the auditions probably the second weekend in February the, around the 10th but um, times and dates to be solidified so if you're interested or like I said if you want to talk about getting involved on the production end as well you can give me an email at mgilbo at broadwaybullet.com so uh, here's a little sampling from the sky you got me fascinated bewitched and captivated To stop it, stunned and paralyzed So completely petrified What you do? Oh, you're practicing that voodoo I know heartbreak is coming But I can't run I'm just going blind Staring into the sun song unless you're here with me and I don't want to spend another night alone baby rescued me and now I'm ready for it all gonna take this chance with you ups and downs I'll brave the ride every day you by my side I'm ready for it all your love lets me do Guess I take a little too long deciding what to wear And maybe I'm a little too vain with all this product in my hair Then I sing way too loud, driving in my car And playing the drums on the steering wheel, I look like I'm from Mars Everyone at work thinks I'm strange Well maybe it's true when you know it too And somehow you just deal with it anyway
and I milk before long, so I wave goodbye to my single life. You know some actors who might be right for this role. That montage is also directly downloadable at cupidmusical.com or michaelgilbo.com. Uh, so I'd love if you'd help me spread the word to get some good people coming on in. Want to have a great cast for that. All right, so uh, that wraps up Act One. I want to say that uh, we were expecting to have Marty Cooper back for on the positive side. Uh, unfortunately, had a little bit of a relapse. Uh, nothing serious, but it was enough to. Keep him out again another week. Uh, he says he will be back for the season premiere. Uh, the season premiere is going to be coming on the 4th, Thursday in January. So that'll be the 24th, because uh, we're doing the 2nd and 4th Thursday of every month now with the things. So uh, if for some reason you're, you know, thinking, oh, my God, I can't do without my fix, uh, I know that some of you haven't figured out how to get the uh, Act 2s yet. So you could uh, take some time and go listen. There's been doing some great interviews in the Act 2s as well. Just uh, if you look in the iTunes library, I'm assuming you're going with iTunes, if you go to your podcast list at the top left section and then you see where, you know, Broadway Bullet is in your subscription list and you open it up, it lists every single episode of Broadway Bullet ever. All you have to do is hit Get and you can listen. I, I bet there's some back episodes that you haven't heard with a lot of great stuff in it. So hopefully that'll keep you, you know, satisfied while the season break is going on. I got I got a busy holiday, that's for sure, getting a lot of stuff finalized. So, um, well, we're going to take a break, go get yourself a snack, and join us back here for Act 2, where we have Grammy Award-winning songwriter Jeff Silbar wrote Wind Beneath My Wings. He also wrote the theme for My Name is Earl recently, uh, a lot of things, really interesting interview. We also have Flying Fig with uh, New Amsterdam's, another musical in development, 1812. Uh... And we're going to hear another song, actually, from William Finn. I'm going to play something for Spelling Bee in honor of its uh, the fact that it'll be closing before we have our next episode. All right. 
Don't ditch out on Act Two. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.